Welcome to the Realizing Revelation 7-9 podcast, a production of the San Fernando Presbytery. Realizing Revelation 7-9 means we are awakening to a new meaning in Revelation 7-9, and we are working to make Revelation 7-9 an experienced reality. I'm your host, Mark Fields, and this week we get to hang with Dr. Tamisha Tyler. She's the Assistant Professor for Theology, Culture, and Theopoetics at Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. She's been a starter and a discerner in our presbytery with Cyclical LA and joins us to share her story of race and faith. She shares a bit about the energy it takes to constantly translate in a predominantly white space. Then we reflect a bit on Jesus and what it costs to create dynamic hospitality as opposed to a static hospitality. Without further ado, here's Dr. Tamisha Tyler. Hey, San Fernando Valley. Welcome to Realizing Revelation 7-9. I am Mark, and we are here today with the Assistant Professor for Theology and Culture and Theopoetics at Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. She is connected to Cyclical Los Angeles. She's a part of, she's been a part of their discerning group and their starting group. She was a part of an organization called Arts, Religion, and Culture and helped kind of lead them through the pandemic. And now she's a professor. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Dr. <laughs> dot, 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 Dr. Tamisha Tyler. Oh my! <laughs> I was not anticipating that. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, you deserve it and more. Um, oh, thank you. You deserve it. I'm so grateful that you would spend some time with us, uh, sharing your story around faith and race, uh, that intersection, what it's been like for you. There's so many questions that come to my mind. But I think what can be helpful for people first, they, they've got kind of an understanding of what you're doing in the world right now, how you show mm-hmm. up. Would you share with us a little bit about some of that background um, of faith and race so we can get a kind of a picture of what's kind of made you who you are and how you show up, some of that context? Yeah. Um, thanks for that. It's, it's an honor to be here and to be with you, my friend and literal neighbor, so yes. at one point, so I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I probably would start in saying that um, the first theologian that I knew was a black woman, and mm. she was my mother. Mm. Um, I learned so much about spirituality, singing gospel songs, reading the Bible, prayer through her. We were a, um, a family that didn't go to church, but a family that was very much centered around Jesus and the Bible. And mm-hmm. so a lot of my drive in understanding who God was, was first from her teaching and her example. And mm-hmm. so I think that that sets a huge precedent for who I've become now, just being that, having that example at first. I think when it comes to the understanding of like faith and race, looking back, it has always been kind of parallel for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been, you know, in and out of church, having questions about God. Um, I'm an artist, so I was writing poetry since elementary school. So that's a lot of the ways in which I was thinking of trying to articulate. Um, when I got into college is when I started going to church regularly. And I, you know, struggled a bit in what I wanted to major in. And I took an African-American literature class and I was like, this is it. And so mm. um, in focusing on African-American literature, I ended up being a black studies major at my undergrad. Mm-hmm. And that was the first huge point of, college taught me a lot about my own social location in relation to the church and in relation to culture. Mm. Um, it was the first time I'd ever heard that I couldn't do something because I was a woman. And that's what I heard, I heard that in church. My mom oh, always man. said, you can do whatever you want. Ask all mm-hmm. of the questions. If your questions take you to the White House or wherever, keep asking questions, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was never mm-hmm. any boundaries to the questions I could ask or what I can do. And so hearing that, like, oh, wait, what? 
you know, that really gave me a first stop. Concurrently, um, being a Black studies major and thinking through courses like Black religion and all these different things, there were some people who, who expressed their faith as Christians within that. But then there were others who were very adamant in teaching us students, you know, you can't serve a white man's Jesus. Mm. And I didn't have the articulation at the time. The only thing I knew how to say was like, who gave Jesus to white people? Like, I was just so confused uh-huh. as to why, um, as to that statement. And so I struggled a lot because I was going to, you know, these courses that I loved that are really pushing back against the racial implications of being a Christian, right? Uh-huh. And what it meant to honor your culture as a black person, as African-American. And then uh-huh. I was in this very conservative church that was very much, your main identity is who you are in Christ above anything else mm-hmm. and didn't pay attention to the racial implications because ultimately who you were supposed to be was a child of God, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I was really, I really struggled at a crossroads and I didn't have the tools in those spaces to reconcile my cultural experience with my religious experience or my spiritual experience. And I didn't want to let either go. And mm-hmm. so um, I went through kind of like a crisis of faith and identity um, quietly, right, through my holding on to these spaces and still engaging and pushing in my own way. Mm-hmm. I think when I got to seminary, seminary was the first time I'd ever been at a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was at a big undergrad, but I was a black studies major. And then I was home with my family. And then even when I worked, I worked in foster, I worked at a foster agency, but it was owned by a black pastor's family. So mm. I was so like, I always had a, the majority of my community in my culture. And this space was the first time that I didn't have that. And it was a predominantly mm-hmm. Christian space. And I had enough of my own kind of cultural maturity to like sustain myself in that space. But after a, like a couple of years, I realized that I was tired and I couldn't pinpoint why. Mm. And it was because I was constantly in this moment of translation. And I had never been in that much of a dominant space of translation. Normally I had a space that I can go and not worry about that. But because we were in this, you know, pushing for diversity space, and I had, it wasn't like I didn't have any black friends or we didn't have time, but it wasn't to the extent that I had originally had before then. And so I began mm. to kind of dig into. Um, the foundations of my own cultural identity to undergird me. And that was the moment where I was able to reconcile a lot of the, what felt like mutually exclusive identities, right? My Christian identity and my cultural Mm -hmm. identity. And Mm -hmm. I now had different tools to to push back and create my own space. Um, And I think that there were, there are moments where I don't say I regret any of it, but there were moments where I wish that some of the literature and some of the lessons that I learned in my Black Studies major space I had kept. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was really encouraged, like, oh, you don't want to, you know, because on one side it's like white men's Jesus, and the other side is like, you're looking at that you're the bun, oh, that's witchcraft, and da-da, right? And so it was just like, yeah. yeah, I was totally fine with both of those expressions, but I was in spaces that objected the other. Mm, and I felt mm-hmm. like I was in this identity type of tug of war. And I really mm-hmm. had to do the work and I'm still doing the work to reconcile those spaces and to claim both of those identities and to not feel like um, I have to choose. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. To hear <laughs> that. there's, there's, there's a lot there. Not, not meaning like that's a lot. I mean, it's so eloquent and it's so generous to share there's a couple of things from there you, to me that we need to talk about, especially for our sisters and brothers who are trying to experience and embody the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's, there's three, there's a choose your own adventure, except Ooh, we got to choose things. together because okay. we got to get back to the big idea that I think prevents experiencing extraordinary diverse mutual integrated community mm-hmm. and i'm not sure that i'm articulating this correctly but i think the when we communicate this primacy of our identity in christ that is primarily spiritual 
um, ethereal and outside of our bodies that does not integrate our story, right? I think about right. um, the book Colorblind, written by a Korean sister um, here in South Southern California, and she talks about some of the harm that happens when we we say we're colorblind. We talk about this the primacy of identity in Christ, mm-hmm. but an identity that is compartmentalized and not integrated that does not hold the image of God, sacredness of the uniqueness of whatever ethnic or cultural background we come from. Right. And so when you when you mention that, we have to talk about that as members and friends and partners alongside the presbytery i think that's an idea we have to talk about when we think about diversity and becoming more diverse Mm -hmm. we need to talk about okay what does an integrated identity in christ look like yes what i think though you get to articulate to help people understand that don't understand what it means to code switch you talked about how tired you became from translating all the time Mm -hmm. you moved from a space where you felt understood where you weren't having to articulate and translate so much where you just understood to then being in this primarily white institution where you felt like you were translating all the time and you were tired so for some people who are listening they don't understand what that means yeah this might be a first time or we all have like i would imagine uh i'm thinking about not just a scale, but a spectrum of different experiences around this. What does it mean? Uh, it's not It's not playing the game, but constantly there's so many questions that you might be feeling or emotions that you're navigating mm-hmm. that your, your colleagues weren't at the time. Would you share a little bit about uh, more what that was like, what that felt like, and, and some examples of of the translating and um, code switching that you were having to do? Yeah, I think primarily it isn't like a, like I obviously there isn't like a glossary. In many ways there, there, there can be, but I'm not particularly thinking like, oh, when I said this, this is really what I meant to say, right? It's more of a sense of a, a posture, a way of being um, that you have to present. And it's not even, a lot of times there could be code switching for a variety of reasons. For some people, it's in a sense of, quote unquote, playing the game, right? You have to present yourself in a certain way, right? Because of certain aspects of white normativity or white superiority, right? You have to present yourself in a way that says, I belong here, I can do that. That, that, was, that wasn't necessarily what I did. Um, I can be 100% professional in who I am and still be 100% me. And I didn't mm-hmm. feel limited in that capacity. It's funny how like some people would, um, I actually had a chance to serve as student body president in seminary. And when I went to the initial presentation to the board, like here's the new student body president, I'd already had natural hair. And so I had on my outfit, but I had this big fro. And for me, it was like, this is my hair. Like I'm not going <laughs> to... It didn't occur to me to go, Tamisha, maybe you should straighten your hair. It was just, it was my hair. I'm not that great Mm -hmm. at straightening it. I like my hair like this. I'm going to go as Mm -hmm. me. But what that communicated to people, right? Both people who were people of color or black like me, and then people who weren't to say, oh, one of uh, a friend of mine, a former friend of mine who was a former student was like, oh yeah, I saw that the president, I read your name and I thought, oh yeah, she's a sister. And then when I saw you, he's like, I saw you with your natural hair. I said, oh, she's a sister, sister. And I was, uh. and I was just cracking up because like, that's just me. Like I still had like my Rasta hat and my thing. Cause those are things I wore when I was like in school. It's just who I was. Mm-hmm. So I didn't forsake mm-hmm. that. But I think part of it is a translation in the sense that it takes too much time for me to engage in certain aspects of communication that I would with family and friends, a part of my culture in spaces that are predominantly white, because people don't understand what I'm saying. And I don't have the time and energy to explain that to you. So I'm just going to translate. It's also for me in a lot of ways, almost a form of protection. There are certain parts of my cultural expression you don't get. Mm -hmm. 
Like, and not that you don't get that you don't understand, but that you don't have access to because it's not your cultural expression, right? There's a mm-hmm. certain aspects of protecting that I think I underwent um, and I thought through, right? You get this side of me if you're within particular pockets, but if I'm walking into a classroom and you just don't, not everybody is entitled to 100% of you. Mm. Um, mm. I think the energy piece was hard because... I didn't have the built-in, I had to be intentional about the built-in spaces where I can let my hair down and not do anything, right? And now, and a lot of that was because when I was either living in Long Beach or I was living in those spaces, I was predominantly surrounded by my family and I saw them less when I was in graduate school. And one of my family, it doesn't matter who I am. They already know I'm the nerd, I'm the quiet. So it's like, I don't have to do anything when I'm with them. Mm-hmm. I don't say a word. I don't have to be anything. I could just be myself. I can say mm-hmm. the stupid joke that they're, they're like, really? I can do that and not have to worry about them judging me or them doing any. And so it's like this: these cultural safe spaces where you can just be without judgment and without question. I naturally just had them so integrated into my previous space that when I got to graduate school, I had all this residual which allowed me to maintain and keep some of my own identity when I was in school. But I also didn't have those. And because they were so readily available, I wasn't intentional initially about preserving Mm -hmm. those spaces. And so that's Mm -hmm. when I got tired. Um, I think examples of like having a translator thinking through conversation was when, you know, colleagues and classmates of mine, they're having discussions and they're saying these, you know, um, overarching ideas or themes about theology and church experience. And, and I always have to chime in and go, Mm-mm, not my culture. Mm-mm, that's mm. not the way I grew up. Mm-mm, we don't think about it like that. And mm-hmm. it's this constant, like, it's good and necessary, but it does take energy, uh-huh. right? And I think part of the energy is having to always to push back on that and hoping, and, and hoping that as your colleagues and your classmates learn, that they will learn to not make those overarching, <laughs> right? Those universal statements as mm. if culture doesn't exist, right? It exists, there isn't those caveats. And I think that comes a lot from the insidiousness of whiteness. Mm. It mm-hmm. assumes that there there is that universal overall cultural notion of like, well, this is one for everyone. You know, we can say this one thing about God and that means universal and then, no, mm. no. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the the energy kind of went, watching for those moments, stepping into those moments and speaking. Um, it being received, it's sometimes not being received, right? The changes in dynamic of relationships of presenting. Um, also just being a black woman and walking into a space and, and knowing and feeling the energy in the room change without even opening your mouth, right? Mm, um, mm-hmm. Dealing with perspectives of people because I am confident and, you know, I'm pretty laid back. I'm from Long Beach, so I'm confident, but I'm laid back. People <laughs> going, you're just so intimidating. Or, or like interpreting my own sense of confidence and security in myself as something that is threatening. Because they don't mm-hmm. say, you're just so confident and, and full of who you are. It's you're intimidating. So then my confidence becomes a threat to you, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you try to mark the characteristics I have within and of myself as ones of violence, right? And that that's a damage of mm-hmm. having to navigate that and having to walk into a space and say, you know, I'm going to take up this space because mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to do. But also, mm-hmm. I know that the way in which people are interpreting my taking up this space, mm-hmm. I can feel that energy and that mm-hmm. is draining. Mm-hmm. That is so meaningful. Uh, and I, I just want to pause to to hold that space of the energy and what that may have felt like to hear this out of the mouths of people, to feel this when you walk in a room. Again, there's this another assumption about what it means or what it takes to walk in a room. And for me, like I'm someone also uh, of color who I remember walking into two things distinctly around taking up space. And I remember I was working at a mega church here in uh in los angeles and i remember one pastor looking at me and saying man like i really i just want you to like 
like show up and take up space. And I didn't understand mm. what he was saying. And it's kind of patriarchal and it kind of created like confusion in me, but it's also like what I wanted because I was so stuck in like, I was code switching from like, I was in like a Latino context, very like rooted with a different paradigm of ministry. And mm -hmm. then I was in like this multi-ethnic context. And then I was in a black church context with its own paradigm of what ministry meant, its own gospel of, you know, what was important in the gospel, its way of communicating. Mm -hmm. and then I was in this more predominantly white and or like middle upper class, whatever your race is, culture. And that's when this white pastor told me, man, I want you to take up space and I think he was comparing me to a previous black pastor. And, but for me, I knew like I wasn't taking up space, but I didn't know how because I was like code switching. I didn't want to step on people's toes. I didn't mm. want to cast a shadow on anybody. So I was just kind of navigating that way. So it makes me think of that. It makes me think of walking into a therapist's Zoom room in 2020. Uh, my first black therapist and saying, honestly, I, I want to do whatever work I need to to be able to show up in any room and take up the space that I need to because I was so concerned about the people around me. And some of that just, it's not just about race. It's about the story I come from and how I existed in my family of origin, things right. like that. Right. But to hear you talk about, okay, well, I did show up and people just considered me a threat outside of like who I am. And it, it had nothing to do with anything threatening. It's just me being a confident black woman was a threat to some people in the room. One of the things that you said that I want to come back to in this last little bit that you shared, you talked about the space where you can just be. And that made me think about we're talking to leaders and people in San Fernando mm -hmm. who are thinking about diversity and want to see a reality where people can walk into a space and just be. Yeah. This feels like a really hard question. Mm. I, I see you, you're rocking and rolling because <laughs> I'm not even sure. We know that the kingdom is multicultural. When you said that, it made me think, and, and I don't even know if, you know, are we better off starting a bunch of monolithic they're not and there's no monolithic culture but we say are we better off trying to host and create spaces where people can just be or are we better and there's no either or so it's not a dichotomy but it just made me think like man it's so much work to try to create a space where everyone can walk in and just be mm -hmm. that takes a so we're talking about dr tamisha doing all this work to be able to show up and just be on her own. Now we're talking about trying to create a community, a worshiping community where any people, where people who are houseless, where people who are different than us in regards to gender or sexuality, we're talking mm -hmm. about people who are different from us in race, creating a space where everyone can walk in and be. Yeah, I think... There's a lot of things with that. There's a lot. And I think... Yes, there are. So one of the things we have to understand is that when you are creating a space of hospitality and welcoming for people, that's not a static thing. It's a very dynamic thing. Mm -hmm. And the first thing we need to think about when we're talking about creating spaces where people can just be is to recognize that that being may be culturally situated, right? Like the way people be may be different. And to, to recognize that that's just a reality that you're going to have to sit with. And I think our job as worshiping communities is to create spaces of welcome and hospitality for people and to constantly be challenged about where we draw our lines for inclusion and exclusion. Mm. And that is a dynamic thing. That is a ever-shifting line, and we're going to constantly learn. So... There are some practices, right, of, you know, thinking about, right, having that diversity in the room when you're making certain decisions because there are just certain things that you don't know. There's a, um, there's a video of a woman, and she's a nurse, and she's telling a story about why cultural competence matters and why different people need to be in the room. 
And she says that a white nurse came to her and said that she was going to call like a 5150 or something on a patient because they were hurting themselves. And so the black nurse says, what do you mean? She goes, the woman, she just keeps hitting herself. She keeps hitting herself. And I think that there's issue. And so she goes, Mm -hmm. is she hitting herself in her head? She's like, yeah. And she goes, is she doing this? And the Mm. nurse is like, yeah. And she says, she's not hurting herself. Sometimes when we have braids, or, and so she explained to her how the scalp sometimes itches and you can't scratch. So this is a form of alleviating the itch. Mm. Now that's a prime example of a way in which a nurse interpreted a situation through her own cultural lens without the knowledge of a particular cultural um, expression and thought that it was threatening. But if mm-hmm. she didn't have the black nurse in conversation, right? It's a total non-threatening thing. And so I think that's just a very tangible example about how we need to think through people being in the room. So when we're thinking about worshiping communities and hospitality, we need to constantly be thinking about how people are being welcomed, what are the types of spaces, right, from very practical things like accessibility, right, to other aspects of people being welcomed. And we also need to recognize that we may not be that space for them. So for a family that is an immigrant family that is just coming to a space, they don't know the language or the culture, they may need a safe space of people who understand their particular experience so that they can integrate well. Mm-hmm. They may not come to your church, right? Mm-hmm. They may come and visit or whatever, but they may not find a home in your church, Part of the issue is that we're so thinking like we have to make sure that we have a space where every different person can like find their home and expression. And that's great. You need to find Mm -hmm. a space where everybody who wants to come and make it their home can make it their home. But you have to recognize that, especially for people of color, sometimes those safe spaces, and I'm talking particularly to the white constituents, Mm -hmm. those safe spaces are not you. Mm. And you have to be okay with that. And I, or people of particular privilege, right? Those safe spaces are not you. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that mean for us if we're creating uh, multicultural, diverse, inclusive spaces is to recognize that it's going to ebb and flow with the needs of people and that our aspect of hospitality and inclusion and listening and showing up, mm-hmm. right? Say there's, mm-hmm. you, you know... Perfect example is like, you know, the, the typical, you know, white congregation or worshiping community that wants to move into a neighborhood that is very diverse and they definitely want to integrate into the community. But it always seems to be done and they want to integrate to the community and then they want everybody to come to their church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You may need to integrate in community and then people will never show face, will never show up in your church. That mm-hmm. doesn't excuse you from showing up to the community things or being like, right? Like, There is more Mm -hmm. than can be done than getting people in the room. And there are Mm -hmm. other ways to be hospitable than counting them as numbers or members of your congregation or your worshiping community. And so I think people just need to be creative in what it means to be um, neighbors and what it means to be allies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was also said for the communities that are predominantly white, that are in predominantly white spaces. There are ways in which you can show up and be inclusive and be allies and create space for people without um, being in a space that is predominantly multicultural. Mm-hmm. You could be creative about what that means. Mm. Um, See, so yeah, I think those are just some initial thoughts on that. I, I think I really appreciate what you said because I think a lot of times... There's something you mentioned in there. There's so many things. I love what you said about hospitality being dynamic and not static. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when we talk about diversity, we're trying to find the new static. So what can I change? What adjustments can I make to create a new static? But when we think about Jesus and the gospel, it is constant movement. There's, it's all situational. It is all adaptive. It is, I am in Samaria now. I must go through Samaria. I'm at this well with so much history and tradition. There's this woman who is drawing from the well in the middle of the day. 
and this is where I'm at and this is where I must be. And there's a, there's a way that I respond in this situation that is pushing boundaries and multicultural and hospitable to that moment. There's Jesus sitting at a table in Luke 14 talking about hospitality, who's included, back to what you're saying about the lines of inclusion and exclusion. And so I, I love hospitality is dynamic. It is not static. I absolutely love that. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's another idea that you spoke about in there that I that I want to go back to eventually, but I think first we we were not moving to a new static, and that's really helpful. I yes. think the idea that there is a there's some tension. There is a, a, a an idea that we have to hold of what does it mean to be hospitable and at the same time open. To just, I think that's a very mature thing as a leader or as a church, as a community, to mm-hmm. be as open as we can. It's like you make every effort to be open, but then not be, not taking it personal when the community still doesn't feel like your place is home or that your place can be home. It, you know, it reminds me of different ministry moments where I've put a lot of energy into something for someone and they're from a different background. And I don't feel reciprocity in that moment. I don't feel like the person receiving the thing understands what I've done or what I've given. And in that moment, I'm confronted with like, well, what was this for? Was this for Mm. this person or was it for you? And so when we think about creating a hospitable place for others, is it so that we can encounter the kingdom or create the space that we sense we are called to, to reflect the hospitality of Jesus? Or is it about getting our numbers up for whatever else? I mean, I I don't know. And maybe we should take some time to think through like the end of that line is what? So we got five more black people or five more immigrants. And really for me, it's like, how closely can we reflect our community around us? That's the, the potential goal. But at the same time in Los Angeles, how can we be most hospitable and realize that everybody is driving distance away from what they need, to be honest, or a community mm-hmm. that where they can just be? Is this the invitation when we talk about diversity is an invitation to become most hospitable, to become the most integrated neighbor and then let the chips fall where they may? Yeah. And I think that that's that's so important because I think for so many people when you see certain multicultural communities, you recognize that they may be multiracial, but they're monocultural, mm, right? Yeah. When they don't in pay there. attention and, and they're, they're yeah. not dynamic in their hospitality, there's always a particular cultural expression that wins. And everybody kind of falls wow. into that, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's a predominantly, you know, white space is trying to be really like multicultural, you have lots of representation, but the culture remains the same. And so there's a, there's a certain giving up of expression in mm. order to fit within right that particular culture. But mm-hmm. we say we're diverse. Uh-huh. And yeah. so I think that there is, this is where that dynamic can't exist without intentionality, right? Going mm-hmm. back to what is it that we're actually trying to do? Now, it doesn't mean that you don't have an overall culture, right? And it breaks down like we assume that culture is one thing. Like you said, like most cultures aren't monolithic, mm-hmm. right? When you're thinking about, you know, the context of black people in America, that, I mean, who are you talking about? Are you talking mm-hmm. about the descendants of enslaved Africans? Are you talking about... People who have actually, you know, been here for generations from different parts of Africa and the Caribbean. Are you talking about Afro-Latino? Are you t- like, mm-hmm. who are you talking about? Are you just talking about a skin color expression? Are you just talking about a particular culture? And so the ways in which we assume certain cultural lines and boundaries are also up for, right, certain mm-hmm. aspects of expression. And so I think like when we think about these spaces of inclusion and exclusion or boundaries in which and how we understand culture, I think so much of those is kind of all also up for learning. And so there, mm-hmm. there becomes this, this openness that we need to constantly have, 
coupled with an intentionality of knowing, like, who are we becoming as a community? Like, what are things that we do that separate us from other communities? Is it our geolocation? Is it um, this particular reach of hospitality, right? Are we particularly reaching out to people who are facing housing inequity? Are we intentionally reaching out um, to people who are part of LGBT? Are we, is that like, that's not our only thing, but is that one of our core values that shapes the way in which we are, like, there are other ways that we can, right? Does our, does our community, does our church actually reflect our community, right? So there may be times where that may shift. Does that mean, you know, there are times when we do that together. Are there language barriers that keep particular services separate? Are we actually practicing mm -hmm. and maybe experimenting with bilinguality, right, mm -hmm. within the service, right? Are we thinking through our accessibility, right? Do the people who call this place home have certain ceilings or certain limitations in what they can do? Or are, when we are met with those limitations, if somebody hits a wall or ceiling, are we then using that opportunity to reinvestigate our structures and our policies and our what have you, so that we're in, like, once again intentional about our hospitality, and so I think it's 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 a it's a posture more than anything else, mm. right? It's it's mm -hmm. a posture in community that we're doing we're constantly doing that work while being intentional about how we do it, and that's complicated. <laughs> And that's a lot of work. Back to the energy you talked about yeah. of translating. Now we have this and the energy of hospitality, of intentionality. And it's, it's a lot easier to create the the static, the new static. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the invitation of Jesus, it feels like. Jesus. Yeah, and I mean, the thing I love what you said about like the invitation of Jesus and the example of Jesus is not only did Jesus have to like renegotiate what hospitality or service or healing or looked in that moment. Mm. Jesus also messed up. <laughs> mm. Jesus wasn't perfect. I know a lot of people are gonna be mad at me for saying that. Mm. But Jesus also called a woman a dog. Now mm. we could try to theologize that all the way back to the <laughs> Greek and the Hebrew, but at the end of the day, what we have is this mm. moment where Jesus did not dictate the healing in that story, right? Jesus mm -hmm. followed the lines of the inclusion and exclusion. Mm. He didn't upset it. It was the woman who did. And so instead of trying to defend Jesus in that moment, maybe there's an aspect to say, sometimes we mess up and we mm -hmm. fall into those same grooves, right? It's like walking mm. in a trail, right? Or sitting in the, you know, the well-worn lump of the couch, where you sit on one end and you just end up right back in that little because it's so comfortable and it's already set for you and it's shaped to your body exactly the Come way on. you like it. Those are natural things, right? Mm, yeah. Part of that yeah. intentionality is to recognize that and to understand where there is grace as you are changing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Jesus allowed the correction. Mm -hmm. Great is your faith. Ain't got nothing to do with me right now. You're the one that's really... Put kill from this very moment, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Super easy to just fall in line with what has already been established. Mm. But she resisted and he recognized and shifted, right? She changed mm. God's mind because of her resistance. And I think we are less willing to be changed than Jesus was in that moment. Mm. And I think that is the issue. We've become too accustomed, it costs too much right? It costs too much to change our programming around for accessibility purpose because we want this person to be involved. So we just create another service or create another program that's over there. So we say we have it. We ain't got to deal with all of the stuff. You know, we got this main service just right. We got this mm -hmm. main portion just right. Finally, mm -hmm. it costs too much energy to kind of shift it for the act of inclusion. So let's create another program over here so they can fit without fitting, right? Mm, yeah. And I think that that sounds harsh, but it's just what we naturally are inclined to do. We finally got this piece right. Mm -hmm. So now let's, as opposed to, it's gonna take up like this constant, how do I say? It feels unsettling to be in a community that is constantly shifting for the sake of hospitality. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to do because what you ultimately want is for people to feel at home, right? We're going back mm -hmm. to that just be. And that requires a certain level of stability. 
But there's a sense of the nomadic borderland tradition that I think we need to listen to and thinking about instead of maybe having our stability and the structures and the ways in which we format our community, maybe we need to put that anchor in something else so that those things are freer to move around and we're not so emotionally tied to aspects of our church service and our church community if our anchor is in something different. And so I think that there's intentionality in asking those questions. And it's very hard. And sometimes you lose people and sometimes you back away and sometimes you take the shortcut and say, this feels good. We're going to do this for a bit. All of those things are natural iterations of an evolving community. And I think that there's grace there. And we need to be intentional about that dynamicness of hospitality and the Mm -hmm. fact that it will make us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tamisha. (laughs) Something that came up for me when you were sharing, I was having a conversation about a week ago, um, (laughs) almost a week ago, with two other pastors, and we were talking about where our children go to school, Mm. and we were all black. Uh, There's a a black brother and a black sister and me. so we're having this conversation about where our kids go to school and why. And I'm and we're all sharing these stories of where we come from. And one is an immigrant, grew up in the Bronx or Brownsville. And another grew up in New York and in Texas. And I grew up here in Southern California. Mm-hmm. But I you know, so I'm and, and in the conversation, what I'm saying, and this is the com- the complexity of like how do we advance and become, how, do, how does all the water rise so that all the boats rise? We're having this conversation and one, you know, one has kids maybe in preschool. I'm the only one I think where my kids are older. Another one, their, their kids are in preschool and she's talking about, I want to be, I'm trying to get on the board of this school because I can't afford for my kids to go there, but I feel like they're aligned with like how I would raise my children, but I can't afford to get them there. So I'm gonna try and get on the board so they can kind of go up through the school. And I'm like, yeah, I grew up in, you know, public school system and I'm okay and I blah, 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 blah. And I, and I live in this neighborhood and I, I really do like, I want the public school system to grow. But our, the public school system in my city is like the most complex school system above Washington, D.C. as it relates mm. to the per capita public schools versus per capita private schools. So we have this conversation and one of the pastors says, why does the cost back to what you're talking about, the cost of hospitality and dynamic hospitality. And this pastor exasperated, frustrated, angry says like, why does the cost of change always fall on our backs? Mm. It was like, if so, if I, if I don't as an educated and very um, committed community member, don't put my children into the closest school to my house that a pro- the program at that school that is healthy, that is most robust, they can't get into because they didn't start at kindergarten. Then I got to put them in like all the other programs at that school for kids is like low rated. So I got to put them there and then I have to be invested and then it's going to raise the water at that school. But like my kids will get second rate education or what I do is drive my kids across town to another school that we lotteried into to give them the best education experience that they can. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, it's like if I don't, if, if people aren't willing to sacrifice, then, we, then the water doesn't rise. But the people most at stake are usually the ones most invested in the waters rising. Right. And so... For me, when I'm hearing you share about the energy that it takes to in, to create this dynamic hospitality and to find that anchor that community rests on outside of the traditions that we do, the practices and the ways that those practices go, because there's there's a million different ways to practice every single element of our worship gatherings currently. Mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing is that, like the way that my mind translated that was like, okay, well, we talked about the the example of the nurses. And so does that mean that every single session needs to reflect the community? How does every session do that? And then it's going to mean that there's going to be a Dr. Tamisha on every session that walks in that has to feel the weight of translation to try yeah. and push this community along. Then I hear my brother's voice say like, man, the weight of 
change on the backs of the people who most need it. Right. I don't know. That is a call if there ever was one, right? Because that is so true, right? The people who are invested in that change are the people who that change is going to benefit in a lot of ways the most. That is a direct call to people with privilege that are listening to this right now. You probably don't even know about aspects of the school system because you didn't have to navigate those things because cost wasn't an issue for you. Because where you live wasn't an issue for you, right? Because of the way in which things are work for you. So they work. And the people who it doesn't work for are looking to change it. That takes a level of intentionality to see beyond your own self and beyond your own comfortability to say, it don't work for any of us until it works for all of us. Mm. And that is on the onus of the people who are a part of those communities to see uniquely to say, this don't work because this, this, and this, and I did this today. But it also takes a part of the people who are, who are not a part of those communities who have certain privileges to go, okay, I'm recognizing that this doesn't work here. Why does, don't they have the same resources as they do over here? And what can I do to insert myself so that there is some kind of spark of change because these people should not have to be invoking this change alone. I should not only want to change things because I benefit from them or because they affect me. Because reality is if they affect people in my community, they affect me. Mm. And so I think that that is a direct call to people with certain areas of privilege to pay attention. I almost said a different word, but there are church people on this call. To pay attention (sighs) and to show up and to do the work that is needed and to listen to the people when they say they need something and to think about how to inserting yourself into helping with that. This is not about a handout. This is about you showing up for your community so that they have access to the same things that you naturally get access for without even having to think about it. Hmm. That is a direct call to them. And I think that it's unfortunate that people have to say, why do I then have to make a sacrifice and I don't get to choose to drive over here to send my kids to school in the best education because a system that was racist and classes created these complicated systems so that people of color and people who don't have certain incomes can't get the education that they need because their assumption is of a certain level of ignorance. Their assumption is that if you're a part, if you look a certain way or if you make a certain amount of money, that you don't have what it takes to progress within the education system. And I'm like, well, My mama didn't make no money. And I'm a black woman sitting here with a PhD. So that just, Mm, there's so many mm, ways to mm. prove that wrong. So maybe instead of saying that I'm a unicorn or that we're exceptions Mm. to the rule, Mm. maybe you need to look at the rules and go, something is wrong. And Mm. that is the shift that people, especially with privilege, need to start doing. Because yes, it is on us to be able to be a part of that rising tide for the people in our communities, but it isn't only on us. Because the systems, right, There are people with power in these systems that can help move this a lot faster. They don't wreck it. They don't pay attention to it because it don't hurt them. So Mm -hmm. I feel like your story is a direct call to the people on this call. And that's why I say like if it's a predominantly white organization that's in a predominantly white space and their whole neighborhood is white or whatever, what have you, that doesn't negate the fact that you can't be anti-racist. That doesn't negate the fact that you can't be an ally in any kind of way. That doesn't negate the fact that you still have work to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that part of that uncomfortability and that dynamicness in that sense of inclusion and hospitality is recognizing that the systems that are beyond you that you benefit from are often on the backs of those who are suffering. And you need to be investigating how to help and how to shift those systems because the fact is there is more than enough. Mm. We talk about abundance in the end, you know, and then all these things will happen and we'll inherit a new earth and we'll get all of this stuff. And it's like, we already have it. We just don't manage it well. The abundance already exists. We just choose to be scarce because it benefits us. Scarcity mentality benefits you when you got the privilege and the power, doesn't it? Because you're not scarce. You get to hoard. But a redistribution of whatever that system is will cost. I think it's worth it. But other people have to, too. Oh, that's so 
Good and so important. I want to shift our focus for the last bit of our time together to Revelation and the kind of sparking heartbeat of what it can look like to create dynamic hospitality. It's almost like the vision of dynamic hospitality. And I think that there is a hint of the anchor in here. Mm. But I also think that the anchor you mentioned, that if we can make this thing the anchor, then the other things can kind of like, we can become, uh, we can hold the other things looser and hold the anchor more tight. So this is a, an example. John writes this revelation. And what I was thinking about before getting on the call, or getting on our conversation <laughs> is... Back to what you said about, is this about future things or is this an, an invitation to a now thing? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's important, you know. But let me read, we'll read Revelation 7, 9, maybe 9 and 10. Okay. 9, 10, 11, and 12. Let me read it, and then I want to hear your perspective. <laughs> read the whole pericopeak. Just go on. ahead and ask. Yeah, yeah, go <laughs> on. Uh, so John's writing here. He says, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, All tribes and peoples and languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Hmm. Dr. Tamisha, on the back end of our conversation about dynamic hospitality, about a place to be and what that looks like. We have this picture uh, of people from every nation, every tribe surrounding the throne with palm branches. What, what stands out to you? I know this is going to sound weird. I was thinking about a couple of things. Um, I was thinking about the palm branches. I was thinking about... Um, Jesus entering into what is going to be his final quest toward the cross Mm -hmm. and the palm branches that were laid out before him as he entered. Um, I was thinking through the expansiveness of diversity that exists in this space. And I was thinking about the Acts moment, right? When the Holy Spirit dropped. Mm -hmm. And I was also thinking about the Tower of Babel, right? Uh The ways in which... Um, what we can do together without forsaking who we are, right? And I imagine that even though you read what was shouted in English, Mm. that because there were several tribes and several languages, that everybody was speaking their own native tongue. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about the one accordness, wasn't about a certain cultural assimilation Mm -hmm. the one accordness was about devotion and worship to god and there was room for every bit of who i am in that expression Mm. and it wasn't questioned it wasn't placed in a certain hierarchy of superiority it just was and everybody was one accord and so i think about those aspects and i think about this sense of Revelation, right? This, 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 we always talk about it in the future sense. And I always, I study science fiction. I love science fiction. Um, and I love speculative fiction. And one of the things I talk about in my dissertation is thinking through what it means to look at eschatology, right? The end times, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Less about 
these are the things going to happen. And we're trying to, you know, make charts on timelines and stuff. And more about what I say is speculation in community. Mm. There's aspects of speculation that, that incorporates dreaming, right? There's three ways you can write speculative fiction. The first is um, if only. If only people can fly. And then you craft a story around that if only. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is what if, right? What if extraterrestrials were real? And then you craft a thing out of that story. Mm-hmm. And then another is uh, if we continue. Like if we continue in this vein of how our world is now, mm. this is the world that we'll inherit. And mm-hmm. that's where you get a lot of the dystopia and all of those things, right? Wow. So these are the mm-hmm. three big categories. Mm-hmm. I wonder that if we think about generally the biblical text, how that fits in there, right? Especially yeah. that if we continue, you could fit most of the prophets, the prophets in that. They're mm-hmm. basically saying, like, if y'all keep doing this, this is basically what's gonna happen. So mm-hmm. read the writing on the wall and stop doing that. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this moment is this sense of like this what if or this if only, right? This speculation of being on one accord, the speculation of just this grandness and this beauty of all that has been created throughout history, right? Every representation of culture and tribe and language being together in one accord in worship. Mm. Part of what then is our task is not to investigate the intricacies of how that is going to happen, but to begin to shift our lives in ways that brings that into reality, right? And this is where you get that concept of, uh, what's the word, prolepsis, right? Mm. A hint of the future in the now. So mm. this is how they orientate some of, uh, some of Jesus' healing, right? These mm-hmm. pockets and these moments of healing represent a future where there is no pain or there is no this, right? But it's a pro- like you get a glimpse of that, right? Mm-hmm. I think we get to control those glimpses of that space. So instead of like investigating, like in the end we'll be here, it's like, nah, if that can exist then, it can exist now. Mm -hmm. And how do we posture our lives so that we become a community that is so on one accord that even when we say the same things in different cultural expressions or in different languages, it doesn't usurp or change the dynamic of who we are for one another and to God. Mm. What do those worlds look like now? And how do we recognize that we actually have the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power that what God has already given us, to make mm. those a reality? It just takes a different kind of work. Mm. I think so much of how we read Revelation is, this is going to happen in the by and by. This is going to happen maybe generations from now, maybe after I'm dead. I'm going to believe it, though. But that belief has no real impact on how you operate in your day to day. And so I want to put the responsibility back into the people in the church and to say, if it was seen, like, and you also believe that God is omnipotent out of time, then what are you waiting for? Mm. So that would be my question to them. If you see this and you're like, this is exactly what the church needs to be because it's what it's going to be, then what are we waiting for? Mm. I honestly don't want to speak to that anymore. I feel like that's a beautiful <laughs> place to land it. But I do think there is that piece of responsibility. Just as you were saying it, I was writing it down from my end about how I read this, how I interpret this. And this goes back to how this conversation lands. How do we move toward this thing? And how do we become... I. I I love that idea that if we were a dynamically hospitable church, what would we do? How would we act different? Mm-hmm. And then we act that way. But sometimes sometimes just those kinds of questions to ask that out loud and to let it sit there and move us a little bit, it can break through because now we're just imagining something versus like me actually having to surrender a seat in a leadership role at my church or the different maybe comforts that exist to me because mm-hmm. we, we work this type of way. I love that the, there is an invitation. If we just ask the question, okay, what would a dynamic hospitable pastor do this week? And we just let that, that question marinate and, that's not a great word, right? Simmer. Just kidding. Same word. Different, different part of the process. No, I 
don't think marination is good, right? We marinate things because part of it is 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 an enhancement of flavor, but also we add certain ingredients in there because it breaks down the meat. It mm. tenderizes the meat, right? Mm. So marinating isn't only about infusing a flavor. It's also a certain breaking down that happens so that things can it, it the the acidity and all of that in the spaces in which we marinate breaks down that meat so that it can absorb mm. all of those flavors and that goodness for when mm-hmm. we make it. So part mm-hmm. of it, yeah, I think that that's a good, it's a good word. Mm. I, I love that you point us towards responsibility and we see this picture. What if, what if this is really possible in our community? People from various different backgrounds worshiping together pointing to the throne, salvation belongs to God. I think about salvation, that transformation, maturity, life change, wholeness, sozo, wholeness in the body, wholeness in the being, wholeness in Mm -hmm. mind, wholeness belongs to our God, sits on the throne and to the lamb who is Christ. Man, can our communities look like that? Back to those, those questions that you talked about. What if, if only, uh, if we continue in this way? Mm-hmm. And I think those are good questions also for leaders and for communities to think about. If we continue in the way we are going, this are, again, this is marinating maybe is the right thing. If we just mm-hmm. think about, and it's not thinking about, because we have to eventually create a strategy and a structure and then, act and execute against those things. But we do need to like first to get a taste of the beauty of all the different languages and then to do the education, which in this part, I think is really this process of meditating and potentially discerning in community. If we continue on the path that we're on now doing things exactly as we do, where do we end up a year from now, three Mm -hmm. years from now, five years from now, based on statistics or whatever, if we were a community really united if we were a community and we really reflect our community, what would it look like and how would we practice worship? I love those questions, though, the three that you mentioned. Can you mention them one more time before we close yeah. out here? Um, um, the questions are what if, mm-hmm. if only, mm. and if we continue, or if this, then that. Yeah, yeah. If 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 this is what, we're pointing to if this is the end goal where everyone is worshiping in community together, how do we do that? Yeah. And that imagining piece. And and I know you like, I don't want you to negate how important when you say like the imagining piece or the meditating piece, because so much of what we do comes from our ability to recognize what happens at the point of imagination right? Mm. These are imaginative questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Doing that in community, and um, I do this with my students all the time, we play different world building games mm-hmm. where they have to create new worlds and go, what are the tensions that exist? How do we navigate them? What are the artifacts and things we use? How do we build this world? And y- it's imaginative, but you all are constantly investigating the anchors of like your own ethics like it brings you back to like, what is the important thing? What, what, how are we loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul and strength and loving one another as ourselves, right? If that's, mm. the, that's the center, right? What world are we creating from that with the conditions that we have? What do we change? What do we... Mm. So those exercises of imagining and meditating and community are absolutely essential to do because it reminds us that there is always a why and there's always a world behind the decisions that we make. And we have more opportunity to be intentional in making them if we understand the world behind them. Mm, mm, mm. Dr. Tamisha, I'm so grateful for your voice, your presence alongside the Presbytery, uh, the ways that you've invested, the ways that your presence and all that you've given, even into this conversation that helps me and helps us think differently about diversity I love that surrender, the idea of dynamic hospitality and responsibility mm-hmm. and taking imagination seriously, taking people's backgrounds seriously, taking hospitality seriously. It's such a gift 
to be together. Thank you so much, Tamisha. Grateful for you. Thank you. This has been such a lively and I'm energized and inspiring conversation. And and your holding of this space is, has um, created the conditions for mm. this. So I appreciate mm. your attentiveness in that way. Absolutely. Well, y'all, that's Dr. Tamisha Tyler. We will put her social media stuff, articles, stuff about her in some of the show notes. We are working to realize Revelation 7-9. That means we imagine it, think about it. If only, if that is where we're headed, what are the conditions that can make that true? How can I experience that now in my little 80, 85, my 100 years on this planet? What can I do to move towards that? Dr. Tamisha, we're so grateful for you here. And we'll look forward to being together again on the next episode of Realizing Revelation 7-9. Peace, family. Bye-bye.